This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode of See Here is dedicated to the first lady of country, Miss Loretta Lynn. Y'all come back now, you hear? Podcast episode 103. My name is Morris. We're proudly part of the Pantheon network of podcasts, and I am so excited. This is the start of a new phase of the See Here podcast because, first of all, as you would have heard, we welcome back to the mic after a long, long time from Brantford, Ontario, Mr. Tim Merrill. waking up you've had nearly a year to get enough sleep come on show a bit of oomph you're back on the podcast <laughs> get some mouthwash welcome back tim lovely to have you back on the show i'm looking forward to more loretta lynn and patsy klein impersonations from you throughout this episode don't get your hopes up well, i already have too late and welcoming back to the show last month she was a guest this month she is a permanent welcoming back from cape cod Miss Kerry Fristo, welcome back to the show, Kerry. Hi, thanks for uh, asking me to be part of this. I'm really excited, and I'm excited to, to talk with Tim again. Yay, it's been a long time, because five years ago, we did an episode on The Devil and Daniel Johnson. That's crazy. Is that long? I think so. Well, this show doesn't move at a fast pace, in case you, <laughs> in case you hadn't worked that we out. We will be vindicated by history. Indeed. So, look, at this point, I mean, if you're on the social media, you might already know this, but uh, we did didn't get to announce this on the show 24 hours or so after Carrie and I recorded last month's episode I got a note from our wonderful friend and compadre in arms Mr Bernard Stickwell that he thought that 10 or 11 years of doing the podcast rounds was enough he said the friendship endures but he couldn't really do the podcast anymore our door is always open to him if he wants to come back for the occasional conversation bernie hope that you continue as a listener and that we continue to amuse you but kerry is our um kerry's not the new bernie kerry is the new kerry but we continue as a trio and really looking forward to seeing 
how these episodes go from here on in. The beginning of the episode, you heard Tim doing his very best Loretta Lynn impersonation. And the reason for that is because Kerry picked this month's episode, which is about the 1980 biopic about Loretta Lynn, Coal Miner's Daughter. So what we're going to do is we're going to play the trailer and we'll be back to talk Loretta Lynn, country music, the Nashville sound, and a whole bunch of other things in relation to all of that. You're listening to See Here, episode 103. Loretta's getting to be a woman, going on 14. You know, the first time I ever seen you, I said, me and that little old gal's going to get together. I can't breathe. I feel like I'm going to faint. Well, that's the way you're supposed to feel when you're in love. Mr. and Ms. Webb, me and Loretta is fixing to get married. Promise me, boy. Don't you never hit her. Sorry, Loretta, but you can't. I just need a little more time. You need a little more time to learn how to love your man the way you're supposed to. Do? Are you leaving? There ain't nothing for me in Kentucky, Loretta. Except a chest full of coal dust and being an old man time I'm 40. I'm gonna have a baby. <laughs> but maybe it'll turn to something that'll raise a Titanic someday. What'd you get me a guitar for? Because I like the way you sing. Have I? Could I tell you now? You boys, stop fighting and listen to me sing. I love him still. Many nights I've laid. Brand new on the Zero label, Miss Lorene Wynn. What? Singing. It's Loretta. It's Loretta Lynn. So let's give a great big grand old Opry welcome to Miss Loretta Lynn. You're number 14 nationwide. Ladies and gentlemen, make welcome Miss Loretta Lynn. I'm getting run to death out there. I need somebody to take care of me. Woman, if you want to keep that arm, you better get it off of my husband. Make welcome, please, a young lady with 21 number one records, Miss Loretta Lynn. Baby, they're out there waiting on you now. You don't want to let them down. Don't tell me about letting them down. The first lady of country music, Miss Loretta Lynn. Things is moving too fast in my life. Dude, if it's going to break us up, I'll quit. Successful people don't quit, baby. Not much. We were poor, but we had love That's the one thing that daddy made sure of He shoveled coal to make a poor man's dollar And we're back from break. Morris over here, Tim over there, Kerry very near Tim's over there to somewhere over there. And we're here to talk about 1980 film directed by Michael Apted, he of 7-Up fame. Coal Miner's Daughter, the script is by Thomas Rickman, and it stars Sissy Spacek as Loretta Lynn, Tommy Lee Jones as her husband, Doolittle Lynn, or Oliver to his parents, the great Levon Helm as Loretta's father, Ted Webb, and Beverly D'Angelo as Patsy Cline, with a couple of special cameos. William Sanderson, in a very small role at the beginning of the film, only single him out because I'm sure that you guys will have something to say about William, and Ernest Tubb, playing as Ernest Tubb. The IMDb summary is the fictionalized life of singer Loretta Lynn, a girl who rose from humble beginnings to become a country music star in the 1960s and the 70s. Now, I read where Loretta Lynn said, because the 
the film is based on her own biography, which I think was ghostwritten. But she did say that, well, the book is the truth and the film is based on the book. So it's the truth. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's just another lazy IMDB summary. But anyway, that's their summary. We're going to go a bit more into this and about a whole bunch of other things related to Loretta Lynn and country music of the era. So I'll start off with you, Kerry. This was your pick. Where do you stand on the music of Loretta Lynn? Have you long been a fan of her music? Did her music lead you to this film or was it the other way around? What's your origins with this? Well, my origin, well, thanks for doing this film, for one thing, because I just came up with it and and I'm really glad that we're doing it. (laughs) But the first time I really heard her music was probably on one of those sort of KTEL ads, you know, and it was like country music and they sang there's a little snippet of all these different songs. KTEL Records presents 20 famous country hits, 20 original stars, Ernest Tom. I'm walking the floor over you. Kenny Wells. Honky Tonk George Joe. When the dress grows over me. Hanson Cargill. Loretta Lynn. Johnny Cash, Bill Anderson, Red Bully, Jack Green, Buck Owens, and many more. 20 famous country hits, only $3.99. I think it was the one, um, <laughs> don't come home a-drinking with loving on your mind, you know, or something <laughs> like that, you know. <laughs> and that was, I think, the snippet. But so I didn't really know her until I saw the film. And I really liked the film a lot. And I really liked the music a lot. And I was kind of surprised because generally speaking, I'm not a country music person. But this was so terrific. I mean, I really enjoyed it. It's one of those movies that every time I happen to be watching TV, flipping through channels and it's on, I will watch it to the end. So I've seen it. I don't even know how many times. Sometimes just pieces of it, you know, but I really like the music and I really like SpaceX singing in it. I think she does a terrific job. Beverly D'Angelo does a really nice job, even though, I mean, nobody could do Patsy Cline. And Patsy Cline's songs are insane. I mean, the octaves involved are, like, unbelievable. They're crazy, you know? It's the lowest thing in the world and ends up up here. But she did a fantastic job of singing. And I like the way they sing together, you know, when they're singing, you know, I'm back in baby's arms. That's what I love that part. I love when they sing together like that. You came from a professional singing background, Kerry. So did you ever do any of their songs in your band? No, I, I didn't. The closest thing would be like Linda Ronstadt, you know, which right. can have a country twang to it sometimes. But yeah, that, that'd be the closest to it that I've ever done. But I just love it. I just think it's a great story, you know, and, and the character. Characters are really interesting, and it's not a hundred percent accurate, 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 but it's close enough so that you get the idea of what their life was like and how they, how she moved through the ranks and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of neat. I mean, look, I think often I've heard the saying that you want to be entertained. You watch the biopic, you want the truth or close enough to the truth. You read the book, read the history books, or something like that. I will say that. As biopics go, I think this one's fairly close to the facts. I mean, close enough. I mean, there's dramatic license. If you look through it, there's stuff like the song she sings here wasn't written yet when they supposedly sang it, but that it's sort of nitpicky, so it's not perfectly historically accurate. But I think it, it's a story about people and about characters and about what their lives were like and how they change throughout their lives and how they stay the same. And all the characters that they meet along the way that all contribute to who they are. And so that's the kind of story that it is. And so if you're going to nitpick about, well, this was this happened in 1963, it didn't happen until, you know, uh, shut up, go lie down. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, Tim, I'm not 100% sure where you'd stand on Loretta Lynn or the Nashville sound, but where did you stand on her music? Have you long been a fan of her music? And uh, what did you th- initially think of this film when you saw it? I'm sure you saw it a long time ago. Well, first off, I want to say that this film, when it dropped, this was a huge phenomenon. Like, I remember my mom and dad going to see this in the theater and the theater being sold out. People lined up right down throughout the mall to get in to see this film. It's so funny how... Today, terrestrial radio doesn't have the impact of what it had when we were younger. AM radio, specifically. AM radio was what we lived on when I was a little kid. There was, yeah, FM was just coming in. God, I feel like a relic. But that, <laughs> Welcome to Old Person's Podcast. I just remember like hearing, like just always hearing the ta- like the punch of Loretta Lynn's songs. And what I mean by that is like Carrie just said, you know, don't come home from drinking with loving on your mind. Or the one I always remember is One's on the Way. They say to have her hair done, Liz flies all the way to France. And Jackie's seen in a discotheque Doing a brand new dance And the White House social season Should be glittering and gay But here in Topeka The rain is a-falling the, the funny thing is You've got to consider with this There was never really that many Country biopics done before this i mean like there was a pretty big one for the 60s uh hank williams with uh uh george hamilton playing i did hank not williams, know that wow. playing hank williams in the 60s yeah there was that but beyond that there was not a lot of country biopics and on top of it as well there was not really any female country singer biopics that this was actually probably a, what i know of the first one because this was uh what was that one sweet dreams that came afterwards the Patsy Cline one with uh, Jessica Lange. There was a number of them that came after this, but there was not a lot of country biopics. And what you're saying about the book versus the movie and everything. I have friends of mine in the film industry that are directors. They say that one of the hardest things to get your stomach around is being able to sit in a theater with an audience, with a full audience, and watch your movie. Now, if you think that was hard enough, imagine being Loretta Lynn sitting in the theater watching somebody direct her life story seeing it like that i i don't know like i wouldn't be able to do it man <laughs> i'd just be like i'm out of here like i, I just want you to want to puke you know we're you know, not whether or not it's good or bad but it's just the fact that it's up there i think she had a lot of involvement which makes us there's a lot of times when they pay you they take the story and then basically you know on come the embellishments you know or uh, omissions or whatever but i think this plays pretty by the numbers so Certainly no comparison in terms of subject matter, but the very recent Queen biopic, Bohemian Rhapsody, which had been proven beyond doubt. There were so many factual inaccuracies. And I know what you were saying before, Kerry, about oh, it should be more about the mood. But that had Brian May and Roger Taylor's involvement as producers or executive producers. And you thought, well, how could they let these clumsy timeline matters sort of get by? So... Once again, they probably, oh, just we're happy for you to tell a Hollywood story. It doesn't matter. We'll keep the truth. We might write our own books one day and we'll settle it. But, you know, hell, this will get out in the theaters. It's not too offensive. We'll let it go. Real wonderful, honey. Thank you so much. Hey, by the way, you think you might come back next week? <laughs> I ain't got nothing else planned. I <laughs> ain't got nothing else. Okay, Loretta Lynn. <laughs> I've started reading the book, but I only got hold of it quite late before we were going to start talking. So I've read and reading things in her own voice. I absolutely found it fascinating. I'm looking forward to getting through the rest of the book. But what it seems uh, from what I've read, not just from what I've read in the book, but from what I've read about the book, is that the film is reasonably faithful to what she claims is the truth. But the one thing that confused a lot of people was that, you know, she claims in the book or in the film was that she was like 13 or 14 years old when she got married. And it's long been said that she got married at age 16 or something like that. I mean, it's still really early age. It seems like a bizarre thing to be lying about, especially when it's not that much difference. But it could have been legalities and counties and that kind of thing too right no but the whole point is that if it's 16 it's probably legal 
So she's actually saying, oh, I was 14, when it may be questionably legal and questionably ethical. It just makes for a better story. I mean, I feel like that's probably why she embellished it. Either that or she didn't want people to know how old she really was. And she figured shaving a few years off back then would help. (laughs) Make it more salacious. The story as it is probably in the book about, you know, certainly in the film, it talks a lot about her relationship with her father, her closeness with her father, her frustrating relationship with her husband, Doolittle, him getting her a guitar because he liked the sound of her voice and thought that she should do something musical. That early bit about her driving around the radio stations to personally make certain that the DJs would actually play her music. If those are all things which I believe are in the book and so accurate, so reflected in the film. And they would sound like tropes from a musical biopic. But as you've already gone and said, Carrie, regardless of you know whether it's for artistic embellishment or not, they are entertaining parts of the story. I do have issues with this as a typical biopic, but which I'll get to. But overall, yeah, I guess I agree with you guys that this is a fun watch. You know what's interesting too, when you're talking about all the tropes of a biopic, and like I said to you, this is one of the first biopics really that was done. This is kind of one of the films that establishes that because now that you're, what I'm saying you're listening to you talk about this, I'm thinking how many other films have I seen that followed this that had the same type of tropes? One film which is on my list of shame and it probably means we need to do it on the show is Bound for Glory. Oh yeah. Oh, that's a good film. Yeah, the David Carradine film on Woody Guthrie. So we do need to do that. And that came a few years before this. But you're right. This is. It doesn't seem like there've been that many. The other biopics that we know of were more like classic 1940s, 1950s films, like the Glenn Miller story with Jimmy Stewart. Sure. There was, there was a, a real. And there's not a musical biopic, but who is it? Donald O'Connor starred in uh, the biopic about Buster Keaton, which I believe is a huge work. Of fiction. Right. Yeah. Harry Grant played Cole Porter in one of them way back when, too. And they're just, he's glossed over just ridiculous so so those those films i don't think have the same sorts of tropes that we came to know from the 1980s biopics on was they're just musical entertainment maybe 90 percent fiction 10 percent fact because they couldn't get away with making it completely fictitious those early mgm musical type biopics are a completely different work to what uh, eventually became like the standard sort of thing and you may well be right tim that this is where it all starts. I just sort of wanted to talk about, just for a moment, my own entry into country music. I came to jazz through what was then contemporary jazz, like through jazz fusion, and then went back to look at older jazz music, older bop. And the same thing, I guess, with country. I came to country really late, probably more through alt country in the 90s, or bands with a folky country edge like weddings, parties, anything over here. But, you know, I was like listening to Emmylou Harris and Gillian Welsh and Iris Dement and La Love It before I would go back and listen to who we consider to be sort of like some of the more classic country singers. But even then, I've got to confess, it was probably more for me listening to things like Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. Oh, yeah. Or maybe because I love Western Swing, that combination of country and jazz music. Yeah. And maybe more bluegrass with the Carter family. Right. Uh, that sort of stuff. I've got to confess that probably the music that Loretta Lynn was putting out in that period was precisely the sort of thing that I'd avoided. I was listening to a lot of music in prep for this podcast this time around, and it's still not something that I'm completely drawn to, but I get it. Uh, and I get why it's so appealing. And one thing that I was reading a lot about was that she kicked down the doors. She was uh, oh, yeah. a, a, not just like a, a, a revered country music singer in her 60s, 70s era, but she was writing songs, whereas so many other singers were having songs written for them. I mean, maybe country music had its equivalent of the Brill Building or something like that. Oh, yeah. They but, but for a lot longer time. But she was actually writing all her own songs and... And for a large part of it, it was pointed out that she was writing No Holds Barred, I Don't Take Any Shit from anyone. So she was writing those tough songs. Although early on when I was listening to some of the earlier songs, like, uh, you know, The Whispering Sea. I sit down by the sea and it whispered to me. It brought back an old. 
before I'm over you or this haunted house or blue Kentucky girl, they're pretty much in the same mold as maybe the Tammy Wynette type of songs where I love you, I'm so lonesome, I'm so sad that I've lost you, that you're no longer a part of my life, boo-hoo. So they had to start from somewhere, but then there was probably a point where she said, I'm not going to take any more of this nonsense, I'm going to write about life as I see it. You're touching my man, then you're in trouble. Or the song that you really sang a little bit for us, Carrie, uh, Don't Come Home With Loving On Your Mind While You're Stinking Drunk. That is a huge thing, not just for the era, but probably she was a direct inspiration for a lot of other singer-songwriters who came later on. So, yeah, I can write about my life. I can be honest. And one thing I want to know, like, when I get, like, when we finish with recording this and I can sort of relax to read the book, is I'd love to know whether she actually writes in the book about even to a small degree about her songwriting process because you know she came from a very poor background if the film is accurate I mean they like listening to the radio but it wasn't particularly a musical household because that was a luxury that they couldn't necessarily afford so I'd love to know how it was that she came to be this revered songwriter uh, I mean we know she's a, you know, got this great singing voice but the film never really sort of goes that much into it we pretty much go like after 45 minutes of establishing her character after establishing her poor background her husband gives her a guitar because I think you ought to be playing that and then boom she just starts writing songs but nothing comes out of a vacuum I'd love to have known it would have been great in the film but certainly I'd love to know in the book whether she writes anything I was listening a lot to Buck Owens always we know in the film that she adores Patsy Cline you know who, who was she listening to where did she think I heard this and that became a great idea for a lyric i I'd love to know that that's in the book. I think she's entirely self-taught. I mean, part of it is going to be her culture, I would imagine, uh, because, and I would imagine that church maybe was a part of her culture and perhaps singing in church and maybe not necessarily being in the choir, but everyone singing a hymn together or something like that. And it shows her rocking the baby singing In the Pines, which is a beautiful song. In the pines, in the pines, where the sun never shines, and the shiver when the cold. It's a very pretty song. I like songs like that myself, and that to me is more folky, and it's very traditional, and it's passed down, and all this kind of stuff. So I would imagine that she just grew up here, and people sing these songs as they worked in the garden, as they fed the children, as they cooked. Which is pretty much what Loretta Lynn is doing herself when she becomes a mother in the film. She's singing to her kids. That makes complete sense. Maybe her mother was singing to her, and you know, if she had Levon Helm as her father. <laughs> uh, Levon Helm. I, I mean, apparently Loretta Lynn was on set for a lot of the filming. And Levon Helm came out dressed as her father, and she just about fell over because it really looked like her dad, dressed the way he was. And just it really reminded her to the point where she was kind of like struck by it, which I thought was really interesting. And he, I love, he's such a quiet presence. He says a lot without actually having a whole lot of dialogue. Let's talk for a little bit about the performances in this film. So you've already gone and brought up how you feel about Levon Helm. This is not his first film, but it's his first acting role. We're going to count, of course, he's in one of the greatest concert films of all time, The Last Waltz. And that was the thing, when he comes out, I thought, is that Levon Helm? It must be because I've always seen him with a beard. And here he comes out, thin face, no beard. And I had to strike, oh yeah, okay, that's him. Man, for a guy who never acted in film before, I thought, he got it. He got his character as Loretta's father. Already, you know I don't like to boss you, but I got to now, honey. Just let me talk. Doolittle's been up the house every day this week. I don't want him hanging around no more. Because you ain't got no business hanging around with him. You're just a little girl. He's grown up man, wild as a devil. Yeah, you're totally right. He got it as Loretta's father. But I think when you were saying earlier about him being quiet, I think he's a man who's more defeated. But not defeated, but just continuing on. He knows his role. He knows he's, he's in a cage and he's never going to get out of it. You know, like there's a couple of things that really got me. Like where, for example, they're going into the uh, the company store. You know the idea of the company store, Morris? Yeah, yeah. So that's you're in a mining camp right. and you get... 
paid in credits right. or something like that that you can but spend at the company store. Where he's walking in the door with his kid and he says, all right, let's go in. And then the kid says, and give them back their money. There's that. And then there's another point of where when Tommy Lee Jones comes in and he's got the Jeep and he's all high and mighty and he's all hopped up after coming back from the war and they're s- sitting in the store. I think it's either Levon or the guy he's talking to who says, uh, wait till we put a shovel back in his hand. That'll settle him down. And it's just like this whole thing about where he's been outside of the fishbowl. He's been in the sea where all the rest of them have been sitting in the bowl just going around in circles. And Levon's not miserable about it. He's accepting of it. He sort of wonders maybe what his life could have been otherwise, but he's been stuck down the coal mine. For those of you who haven't seen the film, Loretta Lynn, who writes this song about her early life, and she, as she often did, you know, she's the coal miner's daughter. She absolutely reveres her father. And I don't know whether he ever realizes just how much she adores him. He died, was it, of coal lung? Black disease or some black lung disease his role was to go down the mine and earn enough to provide for his family who he absolutely adored leave on the humanity that he has the love that he has for a first time acting performance he absolutely blew me away there's this one moment that almost had me tearing up so early on in the film where loretta decides that she's going to go off with tommy lee jones she wants to marry him he wants to marry her and he's already gone and lectured her saying, I don't want you to be hanging around that Doolittle guy. He's horrible. He's rubbish. Keep away from him. But she says, no, I love him. So he comes into her parents' bedroom to ask for their permission for him to marry their daughter. And Levon has, he has that look on his face. Well, he, he basically approaches it like he knows he's got no choice. He's going to try to have a little bit of, well, I'm the father and I still have a little bit of power here. Two things I want you to promise me, boy. Don't you never hit her. And don't take her all four away from home. Which, of course, he does both. It's a really, really sad moment. The fact is, there's that next scene where they're being married in, I can't remember, the church or the courthouse. And he hates Doolittle, but his daughter's happiness is beyond everything. And there's this great scene. I love how it's been framed. If you sort of remember this in the foreground, we see the back of the priest and we see Tommy Lee Jones and Sissy Spacek looking forward. And that's very much in the foreground. In the background, we see just in the door, this small man just walk in. The priest says, who gives this woman away? And no one's there to give her away, possibly meaning that the marriage would be null and void. But we realize in the background, we see that it's Levon Helm as her father saying, I'll give her away. And just the humanity that he has to make sure that she's happy, Helm just owns it. He just really owns it. And only after he said, I give her away, then we get the look on his face and he just looks completely defeated. And it's just one moment where I nearly teared up. But anyway, yeah, I, I absolutely loved Leave on Helm. And I went and looked in the IMDb. He made quite a few films after this. I had no idea. He had a little acting career after this. And now I'm keen to sort of go and see what else that he did because yeah, I absolutely loved what he did in this film. He's really good. He also apparently Apparently was, <laughs> okay, spoiler, black lung, right? So when they go back for his funeral, he's in his coffin and it's an open casket and they're around it and they're singing Amazing Grace. And apparently when they were shooting it, when they were rehearsing it, they all started singing Amazing Grace. And he sh- sat bolt upright in the coffin <laughs> and said, no, 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 no. That's not how it would have been done. It would have been a call and respond type thing. So there would have been somebody going, Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, how sweet the sound. Amazing Grace, how sweet it sounds. Amazing Grace, how sweet it sounds. That saved the rich like me. So that's how it would have been done. And apparently the guy who ends up doing the call, the saying the words, was some kind of local folk music expert or something like that. And But that apparently is how it would have been done. And so, but he, he gave that sort of technical advice during the making of the film, which I thought was kind of neat. So we, he changed the film in that way. So that part would have been quite different. 
One thing I want to say is I don't know if you realize this, but there's a connection for Sissy Spacek between this film and another film we covered, which is Phantom of the Paradise. Oh, that's right, because she was the set dresser on yeah. that film. Yeah, because actually, and it's funny because that's how she got kind of started in film, because with De Palma, like within, a, I think, a year and a half to two years after doing that, he went into Carrie. I was going to say for a minute, talking about her role, just for a quick second, something that I want to go back to that I almost forgot about. I've always seen, and this is going to be funny, like going to sound funny, but I'm going to say it anyways. You guys ever think sometimes you ever get a, a feeling when you, you see actors or famous people or people that are of notoriety and you kind of equate them to a specific animal? Not often. Can't say that I do. But it's just that, I don't know, something about them gives off the characteristics of a certain animal. I've always seen Sissy Spacek like a fawn and that she's got this kind of real skittishness to her but at the same time it's kind of a raw beauty to her like i don't know how to explain it because when i seen uh malik's badlands for the first time and she's in that she's like a little fawn she's like a scared fawn and when she's happy even the way you see like a, a fawn that way they hop she just kind of has that kind of thing about her i don't know how to explain it but uh when you see her in the holler, butcher holler, she's like this little wavefish kind of fawn. But then when she gets her legs, she becomes more. She becomes something different. When she really starts to, you know, find her music and find her way, she becomes something else. Do you make the fawn comparison because initially her character in in Badlands in Carrie up until she unleashes her power, in The Straight Story and in Coal Miner's Daughter, that there's some level of vulnerability. Absolutely. And it's something about honesty, too, about even though there's a vulnerability, she still has this kind of willingness to come forward she she just doesn't quit like she just still has this thing about coming forward inch by inch until she finally gets to where she needs to be yeah when i was reading about this one of the things that they said that meryl streep auditioned for this role you know <laughs> no. not work. well she had the opportunity to get her country chops out in i think the third film that we ever covered on this show uh the prairie home companion so she could actually do country she could actually sing really really sing it would have been the same situation kind of like like why stephen king hates the shining when nicholson is that you know all the cards are played right from the beginning kind of be like if meryl streep had this role right from the beginning you'd know okay we know where she's going like it just gives it all away or it's just you can see right through it well wasn't sissy spacek handpicked by loretta lynn for this part? she was but, yeah but i don't think that the producers necessarily agreed because they didn't that she was proven enough you know she had right. been in a few movies she had been in badlands she had been in carrie she'd been in three women the altman film altman film yeah and some small, I guess, some small roles. Those are the main ones that I can think of. But those were all there before Coal Miner's Daughter. But she carries this picture. I mean, it's a big job. So I don't know that they thought she could handle it. Here's the thing, though, too, is I think that when you look at the 20s, 30s, 40s, even up into the 50s, a lot of the times it was like Bud Sparks playing such and such or Wilma so-and-so playing so like they like they would they would let you know that they were well-known celebrities playing these people. Right. And then it got to that whole idea of, well, you know, I don't know who the person is they're playing, but I know who they are and I, I like them. So I want to I want to see, you know, see what this is. But you get to a point where people want to see, they don't want a recognized face because it takes them out of what they're looking at. Right. You know, you know they want somebody they've never seen before, somebody who's just like a Joe Schmo. It's more relatable because it's about the story of somebody else. It's not about, oh, well, it's the famous guy playing. That's the problem I kind of had with films like Ray. The people playing them already had notoriety. And you're thinking a lot of people focus more on their notoriety than the roles that they're really playing. I mean, that's really valid, but that's sort of an artistic viewpoint rather than the viewpoint of people who produce movies. 
necessarily. I mean, what? right? So they yeah. want big box office, which this movie had. It was like the seventh highest grossing movie of the year, which yeah. is pretty major for a biopic about a country music star. That, to me, seems like kind of crazy at the time. Right. But yeah. You got to so- consider the fact is that this is pre-internet. I mean, the fact is that all you got were the TV trailers and the radio spots and yep. yeah, that really drew people in. She won the Academy Award for Best Actress or something like that, didn't she? Within a short period of time, you've got Sissy Spacek winning for this and then was it two, three years later, you got uh, Robert Duvall winning for uh, Tender Mercies playing a country music role. So I was wondering, was there some sort of country music chic by the early 80s or something like that? For so long, country music had been the butt of so many filmic jokes, jokes in society in general. You look at when Urban Cowboy came out, there was the other one, I think that Robert Redford did, what was it called, The Electric Cowboy? Yeah, okay. yeah right, it was right. that. And then, I mean, and Willie, Willie did a number of films. He did Barbarossa and Honeysuckle Rose. And- right, right. we got to do Honeysuckle Rose on this show at some stage. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, though, because there was kind of a country thing going on. Because think about, like, Clint Eastwood did Every Which Way But Loose and Every Which Way You Can and stuff. And he so, also did The Honky Tonk Man. The Honky Tonk Man. Yeah. And then Paul Newman did, like, the. this was more Western than country, but he did the... the Buffalo Bill or something. Yeah, in the 70s, yeah. And then you have Sweet Dreams with Jessica Lange, who didn't win because she didn't sing, is what the theory was. But Patsy Cline's a hard act to follow. And apparently Beverly D'Angelo thought she was supposed to get that part. Someone had promised it to her, you know, since she had played it in Coal Miner's Daughter. But anyway, that's another story. Crazy, I'm crazy for so lonely I'm crazy crazy for feeling so blue then there's also Bonnie Bedelia Shirley Muldowney, she was a uh, drag race. Heart heart like a wheel. Heart like a wheel, yeah. So that was a Southern thing, too. So there were more films about Southern people that weren't hicks and stupid people because it used to be the stereotype. Mind you, there's there's this great line in the film after Sissy Spacek as Loretta Lynn is on air and she's talking about, my husband, do. He says, oh, that makes me horny. But she thinks horny means something completely different to what it is. And they get told off by the station management who says come off that dumb hillbilly act thank you dude they're making fun of that in the film i think you know who he is morris uh, joe bob briggs yep yep well joe bob toured throughout the united states where he gives us a lecture it's called how the redneck saved hollywood and it's actually about how in the 70s you know with Smokey and the bandit all the Hal Needham films, like, you know, the Moonshine County Express, all those, like, exploitation films in the 70s, and even up to this, how it drew all these kind of quote-unquote redneck films, pulled in major box office draw. You know, Carrie was talking about the Clint Eastwood films, Walking Tall, like, all of them. And that Joe Bob Briggs show is great, too. I, I went to it. It was really terrific. It, it's amazing because he talks about the history and he talks about, like, where did people who were in the South, where did they come from? They, they tended to come more of a Scotch-English background, yeah. Irish, and then they landed here and here. And he goes into the United States and says where they were. It's really interesting. It's one o'clock in the morning. What the hell do you want? No, Loretta ain't here, lady. She's on the road. How the hell did you get this number anyway? Hey, quit that crying, lady. In the performances stakes, I think we should touch on for Tommy Lee Jones' performance in this film. I think that his character, everyone sort of talks about, yeah, what an asshole Doolittle was. But I think that, and this is partly due, I guess, to how Loretta Lynn would have presented him in the book. She wrote three books, and apparently she goes into more depth beyond Colmider's Daughter, the book, as to how cruel he could actually have been. But they stayed married through up until he died, and she always said, well, I gave as good as I got. And I like the fact that in this film, Tommy Lee Jones 
shows really, really well the different sides of his character. He can be sensitive because he goes and encourages her to play the guitar. He could be cruel, as we see fairly early on in the film where he pretty much rapes her on their wedding night. And then later on, how he feels when she's big and famous. And she doesn't mean to do this, but he feels emasculated and goes around like with his tail between his legs. And there's different aspects. We don't get a flat characterization. And I really think that Tommy Lee Jones does an excellent job on how he presents that character. And it's funny, too, with his moniker, because as the film progresses, all the focus is put on her. Well, he gets to do little. He was originally called Mooney because he was a moonshiner in the early days. I mean, I've only seen Tommy Lee Jones in maybe about three other films. I think it was The Fugitive, No Country for Old Men, and Natural Born Killers. And this film actually breaks, proves that there's a myth that's not true at all, that the man can actually smile. I know. Because because every film you see Tommy Lee Jones in, it looks like he he has to take a dump. Well, apparently he's like that in real life, too. People have said, like, they try to talk to him while they're making a film when they're on their off time or something. He's just not having it. The only time I ever see him a little in better spirits is in Love Story because he plays Ryan O'Neill's roommate. And there he just plays like a college guy and he's sort of a college guy, you know, making jokes and stuff. The first time I ever remember seeing him is in uh, Rolling Thunder with William Devane. I've got to interrupt here for a second. I've not seen that. And our friend Davey McLemore took me to task in the last week for telling him I hadn't seen that film. He's so good in that. Yeah, that's the first film I remember seeing him in. But it's funny because I remember the first time I went to Japan... In Japan, a lot of celebrities will advertise things that you wouldn't expect them to. And uh, there was this soft drink or some type of popular uh, soda called Boss. And I just remember going to a vending machine and seeing Tommy Lee Jones's stone face advertising this soft drink, right? And it was just, like, so funny. I wanted to talk a little bit about musical tropes. Uh, we did mention biopics have tropes, but particularly in music films, And this is one film that I think avoided a trope, but I want to know if you can name any other circumstances. So, And this is the trope about musician or band's first or early performance being absolutely disastrous. So, you know, the commitments, the band's first performance in a community music hall, everything goes wrong with cymbals being knocked over and Deco being an asshole and electrocuting the bass player and pushing the backup singers off stage. In that thing you do, not the first performance, but the first important performance where they're playing in Pittsburgh, they play like a bunch of amateurs and sound like they've never performed together. And I was just reminded over the last couple of days that one of the first films that we discussed on the podcast way back in 2014, ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, the band's first performance is a complete disaster and someone from the audience throws something at the lead singer on stage before they actually recover. But in Coal Miner's Daughter, Loretta Lynn's first performance on stage, and she's completely nervous and hates Doolittle for pushing her on stage to do this, but she comes out looking a little nervous, but she comes right out of the gate and sings confidently and sings wonderfully. So it's nice to know that occasionally there can be a performance, a first performance in a film where that sort of thing doesn't happen. But am I imagining it is the first disaster performance at Trope or have I just sort of been the three films that just happened to come to my mind were coincidence but are there other examples you can think of where that happens or doesn't happen I think it's a pretty popular trope because it kind of shows how let's put it this way most of these music films are about bands coming together if it's like the band comes together they're good the end you really don't have a film. Right. So you need to basically show how the cohesiveness comes together and usually bring in a bit of drama with jealousy or addictions or, or all the uh, the underbelly of it all to kind of show, well, it's barely holding together, but it's holding together. And let's just see how, how long, you know, like the old jalopy's going to hold together. All the screws are falling out, but we're still rolling down the road. Let's just see how far this goes. You know, like, I mean, that's a pretty big trope for a lot of films. I was just thinking about the Blues Brothers. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Put the band back together again. That was a film that was not going to give in to uh, country music cinema chic. That film has one of my favorite lines ever that I love. It's like, we play both kinds of music, country and western. It's like, <laughs> 
or when the guy's trying to explain to him, he's like, yeah, you guys paid, you got paid a hundred dollars, but you drank $200 worth of beer. Right. I was in a band and we had what we referred to as our Bob's country bunker gig. Cause the same exact thing happened. We, we played at this club and when we got there, the guy said, Hey, you guys want a beer? And all the guys said, yeah, sure. And he handed them all a Heineken. And so they're all, this is great. You know? So then they kept getting Heineken's too all night. Right. <laughs> and then at the end of the night, they said, yep. and here's your bill. <laughs> oh, well, my brother is out there. He usually writes out an American Express check, and I, I sign my name on the dashboard of the car. Yep. Right, right. <laughs> that was really funny, though, because we were like, oh, my God, it's Bob's Country Bunker, you know? <laughs> yep, yep. Well, you thought I'd be waiting up when you came home last night. You'd been out with all the boys and you ended up half tired. But liquor and love, they just don't mix. Leave the bottle or me behind. And don't come home a drinking with loving on your mind. Coming back to Coal Miner's daughter, I mean, this is something that I've always gone and expressed in this podcast about my problem with biopic in particular is that everything seems to be so compressed you've got two hours to tell a story that takes place over 20 30 years and considering like the first three quarters of an hour told like in loretta's early days they give a lot of time and i think it's a good thing establishing her character we don't know there's nothing musical pretty much about the first 40 minutes of the film but once she's married and once she starts singing to her kids the musical part sort of feels a bit rushed. We don't really get a sense of idea of time, but one minute she's singing on the back porch to her kids and then five, ten minutes later, she's doing a concert with Patsy Cline. Actually, just as a digression, I read, I would have liked to have seen this, that about two, three years ago, there was a film made specifically about Patsy and Loretta's friendship, their relationship. So that would have been a more condensed two-year period type of film. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen that, but it just sort of feels like the rest of it sort of got a bit rushed. Not to veer off again, you know, on a sidebar, but I think one film that really makes fun of a lot of that big time is Walk Hard. Have you seen that? The the Dewey Cox? Oh, God, you got to watch that. That's hilarious. But I mean, just how one minute he's playing, you know, playing for like a little podunk place and the next thing you know boom like this the next scene he's here and the next scene he's here and the next scene it's like the readers digest elvis lifetime of elvis you know like it's really funny it definitely was an abbreviated timeline but you know in 1980 they weren't making three-hour movies either i do think it moves along and it's one of the reasons why it's entertaining is that it does move along and they do even make a comment about this and perhaps you know once you've read the book you can find out if this is true or not But, you know, they talk about paying dues and all this kind of stuff. Well, it happens that her first song was a hit. And so she got to be on the Grand Old Opry. She did well. So she then performed many, many weeks in a row. And so a lot of people do pay their dues and never make it. I mean, she paid other dues. (laughs) But in terms of, you know, her musical career... They just heard her and said, yeah, you're in, you know, yeah, no, <laughs> we you, like- you raise a good point. And this is going to be a weird thing to complain about. But I know that often one thing that I don't like about the biopic is when it seems like they're ticking boxes off. Was this an important moment? Right. We're going to include that. We're going to include that. And one thing that I think that this film gets right is it's more about the feel. It's more about her relationship with people, with her husband, with Patsy Cline, with her father. And it's less about famous tick off points and yet there's one tick off point i would like to have seen in the film so uh, either of you listeners to the cocaine and rhinestones podcast of course okay right so kerry's just gone and nodded no folks Cocaine and Rhinestones is a podcast put together by Tyler May and Co., who himself was the son of, um, uh, is it David Allen Co., who I think we, we, who we, I think we spoke about in Heartworn Highways when we spoke about that documentary. But Tyler May and Co. put together this show, Cocaine and Rhinestones, which is an amazing history of country music but he's not going from well this started this started then blah blah he's not going consecutively he picks a story that he wants to tell and he talks about that aspect so fairly early on in the podcast life he devoted an episode to the song The Pill by Loretta Lynn 
You wind me and dine me when I was your girl. Promised if I'd be your wife, you'd show me the world. But all I've seen of this old world is a bed and a doctor bill. I'm tearing down your brooder house, cause now I've got the pill. He always talks about things in social context. In it, he talks about like 10 years after the fact, 11 years after the contraceptive pill had been made available is when she performs this song. But isn't it funny, though, like you would say that, you know, you first you get ones on the way and then you get the pill. She went and said, my gosh, if I could have had access to this pill, I would have been chewing them down like that was candy. But, you know, Tyler Manco makes the point that this song got banned. It was recorded. It was like two, three years after it was recorded. I think in 1972, two years later, it was released and it was instantly banned. And then he runs through a whole list of other supposedly controversial songs that didn't get banned, mostly because they were by men. I mean, he says, okay, fair point where, I think it was a song by Conway Twitty, who was Loretta Lynn's regular singing partner. And he never appears in this film, but that's neither here nor there. He wrote a song, or he performed a song, uh, You've Never Been This Far Before, about a night of sexual advancement, a very, very creepy sort of sounding song. And that was banned. But he said pretty much most songs that were sung by women about anything slightly controversial got banned and a lot of them were Loretta Lynn's songs but he said this song which was a song about enjoying sex with her husband not about I'm going to have sex with anyone I want. It's just, I want to have sex with my husband without having to pop out another baby. He makes a point that if this song had been about, well, I've taken the pill, but I regret it because it's not right to be taking the contraceptive pill, it may not have been banned. And it's hard to imagine in 2023, a song where, like, everything is allowed. This song, it's, it, it'd be nothing nowadays. But back in the day, he, he just took the, pro, the radio programmers at the time to task. And I would have liked it if this, the saga behind this, even if it had been briefly touched upon because it's an important song in their back catalogue if that had been touched upon in the film and I, I think that would have been a really fascinating part of the story I don't know maybe that's a film unto itself that would have been tough for the time I think in 1980 I don't know she does say, have one line where she, she finds out she's pregnant and she says she's not she doesn't want to keep the baby she says it but then Patsy talks her out of it and says oh no come on I'll throw you a big baby shower and then she crashes in an airplane but she does talk about it i don't know i just feel like yeah i guess they didn't want it to be controversial and the way it was yeah but it just it just seems like it's an unusual thing to me because this film was being made about the south but ostensibly it was a hollywood film and that would hardly have been controversial in hollywood terms I think the thing is still, like, to tell the story of Loretta Lynn, you're not going to tell the definitive, complete story of Loretta Lynn. It's impossible. I mean, if it was a miniseries or something, you know, like they did, like John Carpenter did with Elvis, who made for TV, that was miniseries. But, I mean, I think the whole gist of what the film is trying to do is to show where she came from, how she began and how she just got set off on her way. And it's like one of those films, because it was about a subject who was still working, it wasn't a rags-to-riches, back-to-rags type of story. I mean, you know, she had her moments. Uh, she was taking all the medications, which I never really indicated what that was really all about. But it does end on a high note. And actually, I think I like the full circle part. And this is spoiler, not really spoiler, where the end of the film has her performing live on stage the song Coal Miner's Daughter. So the start of the film it shows her origins and at the end of the film it shows her singing a song about her origins which i think was really great and really really appropriate just as a bit of an aside there's got nothing to do with the film but i actually caught up with her album of i don't know 15 16 years ago van leer's rose the album that she recorded with jack white producing and that seemed to be a thing like from the late 90s into the early noughties where rock musicians or rock producers would bring back older country singers into some sort of level of fame. And, you know, Rick Rubin with Johnny Cash, Daniel Lanois doing it with Emmy Lou Harris and Willie Nelson, and now Jack White doing it with Loretta Lynn. Have mercy on me, baby. I'm down up on my knees Have mercy on me, baby I'll 
Did, have either of you heard that album, Van Leer's Rose? No. It's fantastic. I've been meaning to. It's really, really, really good because there's a mixture of stuff that sounds like it's got the Jack White imprint, but it's always respectful to her origins. And there's some stuff that does sound traditional country, but not like what she'd been doing. Brings her back into the songwriting room because she hadn't been songwriting for many years. I think some of these are older songs, maybe some newer ones that she'd written as well. And her voice in 2004 was still absolutely amazing. Really fantastic oh. record. I recommend it with all my heart. You, you need to check this album out. But that's as a little aside. She only been driving so much I don't even know where I am half the time. Oh, it's fun though. You know, we, we sing and talk and do. That's my husband. He'll get to acting horny. What? And the more I laugh, the hornier oh, I get. Spread me up one of them bologna sandwiches. Final go-around, anything that we haven't discussed about the film that you want to bring up? We sort of haven't really gone and spoiled it terribly much for the listeners, and but we've given... There's some- not a lot to spoil with this film. It's the story of Loretta Lynn. It's just, there's nothing, you know, there's no... Uh- Neverland Ranch, you know, there's no, uh, there's no nothing sorted. There's nothing surprising. It's just, it is what it is. But what makes it special is, you know, we take this young girl who lived in the shelter, as you said, Tim, of a fishbowl back in Butcher Holler, and she goes out into the big wide world. She won't take any nonsense, and her, her no. husband wants to give her nonsense, and in, like, in the biographies and the books, apparently he did, but this version of the story shows that she found her feet both as an artist but also as a human being and right i think it is a well-told story it's pretty lean like i said there's not a lot of waste on this film not a lot of fat it's just you know gets right to the point and, and it all hinges as you said on sissy spacex performance and she just nails it i mean you have to understand though too for a lot of people this is a two-tiered performance because it's not just on the level of her playing the role of Loretta, but her singing, her being able to maintain. I mean, because they could have had her trying to lip sync somebody and that it would have been obvious. Yeah. And it's not just the fact that she's a good singer in her own right. It's that she sounds, at least to my ears, she sounds like Loretta Lynn. Yeah. It's not mimicry. It's just that she understands that music. And, right. and it's not, well, here I am, a good singer singing Loretta Lynn songs. It's, I'm really absorbed myself into the role. It's like the blues. To play the blues, you got to feel the blues. So there, there are ways of acting through songs that help people who maybe aren't professional singers. Now, Sissy Spacek is and did start out singing, like before Coal Miner's Daughter. She had sung before. It's hard to even ex- express it, but her acting does continue throughout in terms of the songs and in terms... In terms of, you know, mannerisms and expressions right. and I mean, it's just terrific. Just some of the things like that that always stood out to me <laughs> when they're in their house in Washington State and she's home with the kids and she's getting the kids ready for dinner and she's she's got all these apples and one of the little boys has taken and taken a bite one bite out of like all these apples but he hasn't eaten them <laughs> and she just looks at him and goes your daddy is going to wear you out you know and i <laughs> I don't know, it's yeah. just like, <laughs> but the dialogue, the way they act, yeah. the way she's comfortable in that kitchen, the way she moves throughout that right. kitchen, completely believable. This is the American version of the British kitchen sink drama. This is a real part. These are real people. And this, he comes home from work and he pets the dog and he picks up one of the kids and picks up the other kid and daddy's home. And See, look, I would have loved to have seen if they had, if they had done this, you know, in the way that this kind of timid little country backwards girl who's always picked on and belittled and she finds out that she has telekinetic power <laughs> so then she starts starts a career in country and basically everybody at the Grand Old Opry is laughing at her so she locks the doors and kills her. <laughs> <laughs> I've got Stephen King on the line. He said it'll never work. Uh, you've been uh, making your brags around town that you've been uh, loving my man. But the man I love when he picks up trash, he puts it in a garbage can. And that's what you look like to me. And what I see is a pity. You better close your face and stay out of my way if you don't want to go to this city. 
there's our discussion of Coal Miner's Daughter. If you haven't seen it, go out and watch it. Go out and listen to some Loretta Lynn music. Particularly, go check out her album of the 2000s, Van Leer's Rose. I believe she did another album about six years ago, which I haven't heard. But uh, Van Leer's Rose is just amazing. But go out, check out some Patsy Cline. Check out some Loretta Lynn. Get that stuff into your life. You need the fibre. Anyway, there we go. The trio are back. See here is back in your ear holes. I'm so excited. Welcome back, Tim. Welcome back. It's your pick for next month. Okay. What are we in? We're in March. Yeah. Okay. So for April of 2023, episode 104, what do you got for us? Well, I was going back and looking into Rolodex, trying to figure out what we could go at. And I found a film that I, I've always loved. And it involves uh, one Mr. Uh, John Cusack. And it's a film that's called, it's not what you're expecting. Not High Fidelity? No. <laughs> Damn. It's a film called Tapeheads. Okay, not seen this one. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I think you'll enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. There's a lot of music in it. That's good because this is a music film discussion podcast. <laughs> that would help. Yeah. You heard it here first, folks. That's what uh, we're going to be discussing next month on See Here Podcast. Let your friends know, in case you hadn't guessed, this is a music film discussion podcast, and uh, that's why we're discussing films like Coal Miner's Daughter and Tapeheads and all manner of documentaries that we've done in the past and will be doing in the future. Thanks for tuning in. Kerry Fristo, you've had your trial by fire. That's it. You are now an official See Hereian. It's wonderful. Welcome on board. We'll be back next month. Let all your friends know. Tune in to all the other great podcasts in the Pantheon podcast fraternity. All the podcasts are music discussion related, so you're bound to find something else that you'll enjoy. And until next month, look after each other, be nice to each other, and uh, we'll be back for more. All the best. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.